It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Echo. Hi, and welcome back to Sonic Echo, where we uh, explore old-time radio and what makes it great, and we are continuing our Western series and continuing our moving into the adult Western with Dr. Sixgun this week. And with me are my uh, amigos, Jeff Billard. Hello, Lothar. How you doing this day? I'm doing fantastic. Beautiful, sunny day. A little windy, but uh, really nice. Awesome. Right on. And we also have Jack Ward. How you doing, Jack? Savages. There's thousands of savages out there. That's why we're all quarantined, because they're going to come and get us. These painted savages. What other reason could it be? I'm doing well. How are you? (laughs) This all will come clear. That's right. Listen to the show. (laughs) The role of Colonel Crown will be played by Jack Ward in this episode. And that leads us into the uh, the show that we're doing tonight again, Dr. Sixgun, showed on NBC from September 2nd of 54 through uh, October 13th of 55. And this is the fifth episode in the series that was aired on September 30th of 54 on NBC again. And this episode might be called Colonel Crown is a Madman. It might be called, and oh, the other one, here's it is, uh, Trouble at Fort Apache is one of the titles and Fort Apache's Slaughterhouse. Wow. So those are the three that might be what this was called. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Dr. Gray Matson is a very fascinating character, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, his almost mythic role when we get into it, of course, because that's my want. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, uh, Jeff will bring in some Shakespearean stuff as well, because, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to disappoint anybody. <laughs> but to introduce him, he's a very interesting character in that he is a medical doctor and a somewhat of an adventurer. And the opening... Uh, that will description that we'll hear about him is again, his medical bag is strapped on one hip, his six shooter on the other. This is mm-hmm. Dr. Six gun. So yes. we will get to explore him and his uh, sidekick Pablo, which is a Romani person. Uh, some people would call him a gypsy, but that is an ethnic slur. So we will avoid right. that. Yes. And um, Pablo has Mr. Midnight or sometimes just midnight, the talking Raven. Mm-hmm. So we have a very interesting framing device for each one as Pablo tells us these stories. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about before we get into the episode? I think the interesting thing in this is that um, this might be the first one where somebody from the, you know, the East, like he's from Cambridge, I read. Yes. Which would lead, which would lead me to think that maybe he, you know, went to Harvard or something. So, because that's where that is, right up here in my neck of the woods. And, and... Uh, so I, I always find it interesting that, you know, you take somebody from the from the east as in, you know, Boston, Massachusetts, Cambridge, and now it's going out to I believe this takes place in Montana. Right. Um, yes. Well, that's the interesting thing about this is that the town that he's centered in is in Frenchman's Ford, which is in Montana. Yeah. 
or right. a fictional found that's close to Custer, Montana, near Yellowstone River. But then he travels all over. And for example, in this episode, he's going to be at Fort, Apa- Fort Apache, which is in Arizona. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So, but I, I but I, I think that you know the. It, it, there's the good, the fish out of water thing, you know, of coming from one place to another. It's always one of those classic um, story story uh, plots. And I think we mm-hmm. have it a little bit here. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And 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 twice, if if I can butt in here, um, with with his uh, sidekick Pablo, uh, because he's a fish out of water as well, you know, and seems to sure. be wandering along with him. It's like the framing device we can talk about after the show for sure, because I think it's really fascinating what they do with that. Did I ever tell you the story of my parents going to an old Western town in Arizona? No. no. Stop me if I have, because this is a, just a really quick one. So this, the, a bunch of hippie guys, uh, and, I, and that's how my father described them, how they described themselves, decided that they were going to buy this old abandoned ghost town. And they spent like decades uh, just living there. And then they sold it to another guy when they all sort of moved out. And he went through bit by bit, sort of cleaning out and because uh, they would just fill the places with garbage and everything. And they were filled with rattlesnakes. So we'd have to go in and get rid of all the rattlesnakes and slowly restore all the buildings. So they're showing my dad one of the buildings. And, and inside is this beautiful Apache warbo. And my dad said, well, where'd you get that from? And the guy said, well, actually, it's from one of the local tribes. I went to get, you know, I, I went to talk to them about stuff because there was a whole bunch of uh, arrow points just outside of town. So every once in a while, if they got out of town, the Apaches might go after them. So he, I, he and, and when I went and talked to this guy, he was so impressed with what I was doing to try and, you know, bring back not just the stories of the, the cowboys there, but also of, of the Apache in, in an honorable way that he gave me this bow. And wow. it was his gr- grandfather's grandfather's bow. And so the guy's holding on to this bow and he's just amazed. He goes, did this kill any white man? And the tribal elder looked at him and winked and said, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which was some of the best lines I ever heard. It's got to go in a Western story at some point. So. <laughs> yep. Very cool. And that leads into, we're starting to get into uh, the part of our series where we're going to you know, start dealing with some of the more um, racial issues and and other class-based things. Um, You know, we're going to be dealing with uh, Native American and the prejudice against them in this one. And is that justified? Is it not? So that'll be an interesting uh, thing to start exploring. And we're going to move into uh, some other, um, some shows uh, for the last part of our season that will uh, discuss similar things as well. So that's kind of where we're transitioning maybe into a little bit more of that adult Western thing, which we've talked a little bit about. I found out that um, the adult Western is considered a post-World War II phenomenon with deeper psychological motivations. Maybe after the war, people needed something a little bit uh, meatier to wrestle with some of the, you know, in a mm-hmm. mythic way again, some of the things they just dealt with with the war. Um you know, what, what does it mean to actually draw a gun on someone and kill them? What does it mean to have an enemy? Uh, who is the enemy? You know, what, what, how do we deal with that? And so I think we're, we're going to be interesting, entering some interesting places. Cool. Is there anything no else question. anybody wants There's to no... go ahead? No, I, I was just saying that in li- listening for some future shows, I was, I was listening to um, Have Gun Will Travel last night. And, you know, what you say about the, the racial things is, of course, they have the, uh, 
I, I believe he's the, the Chinese character. I think his name is Hey Boy or something like hey that. Hey Boy, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, that's that's pretty cringy in 2020. Yep. Um, you know, to have that, and it's probably played by a white guy as well. So I, I think that you know when what I'm finding and listening to some of these old westerns is just that Lothar, um, and it's turning me off to some of them uh, because of what they're doing. But you know, maybe we should just try to transcend that and just talk about it. Yeah, and that would be an interesting thing when we get there to also talk about, um, you know, looking at art at the history, at the time period that it was written instead of, um, you know, from a modern sense and, and how can we do that? How can we not do that? You know, everybody right. has to make their own decision, but that'll be an interesting discussion when we get to that point. Right. I know Have Gun Will Travel was a favorite television show of my parents. They It, it sure. was one of the shows that made the uh, switch just like um, Guns. So it, right. it made it yeah. the same sort of cut. and. Um, I was talking to mom about this uh, with another show that's just out on Netflix uh, called Hollywood. We were talking oh, yeah. about uh, exactly, you know, when were these terms in place, for example? Um, and so she was saying, yeah, we didn't think about any of that stuff back right. then. Yeah. It was, we really have changed as a society. And she's saying, I'm not, I'm not justifying stuff, but it was literally an alien world for you to bring stuff like that up to us because it wasn't stuff we ever would have thought of. So. Exactly. Historical yeah, context is, is important, yeah. but I think we're seeing a very interesting one here where, and we'll, we'll see it demonstrated in the episode in just a few minutes, where there's a direct mention of him, and again, at post-World War II, where he is friend and physician to white man and Indian alike. So, yes, was, you yes. know, just a few years later, we're getting a whole different type of more... I won't even say socially conscious because I think that's too much of a modern phrase um, and, and a little bit of a weasel term, but at least socially aware. They're trying to talk about these things. They're trying to at least um, figure out where they sit with it. I think it goes to the morally gray term. You know what I mean? Like yes. they, nobody, nobody is, is all good. Nobody is all bad. And anyone who's trying to tell you these are the white hats and these are the black, black hats usually have some kind of reason for doing so. And yep. that's, and I think that's the, like you said, the post uh, World War II uh, ethic, which kind of opens up the door for what we're seeing today. And wow, are we jumping way too ahead? <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. So, is there anything else that's a preamble to prepare people before we get into uh, Doctor Six Gun and Colonel Crown is a madman, or trouble at Fort Apache, or Fort Apache Slaughterhouse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's go to it. Dealer's choice. <laughs> Right on. Alrighty, so everybody enjoy the show and we'll see you on the other side. Across the rugged Indian territory rides a tall young man on a mission of mercy. His medical bag strapped on one hip, his six shooter on the other. This is Dr. Six Gun. episode in the exciting adventure series, Dr. Six Gun. Ray Matson, M.D., was the gun-toting frontier doctor who roamed the length and breadth of the old Indian territory. Friend and physician to white man and Indian alike, the symbol of justice and mercy in the lawless west of the 1870s, this legendary figure was known to all as Dr. Six Gun. 
the gypsy, a purveyor of fine treasures, a bearer of gifts. Well, if you must, a peddler. My place of business, the thousand mile trail in the Indian territory. Ah, This is my business associate, Mr. Midnight, a talking raven. And although he never says much of consequence, he is a good companion. We have a friend, Midnight and I, perhaps you've heard of him, Dr. Six Gun. We three have had many adventures together. Like the one which began one hot afternoon, I was on the road to Fort Apache with a carload of trinkets to sell to the cavalry. And I rode out on the retreat of Laredo. What's the matter? <laughs> you, uh, you object to my singing, old magpie? <laughs> or do you see something? Eh? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Just hold on. Don't move, peddler. I am like a statue. Drop your gun. Pablo has no gun. No gun, no gun. Get down off the wagon. Good. Walk over here. Behind this rock. Really well. Stop. Help me up. Help me up, I said, or I'll kill you. You are bleeding badly. I know that. Help me up. Really well. Now, get me to your wagon. Very well. You have been beaten badly, my friend. I don't need your sympathy. Now, help me up on the wagon. If you will permit me to to take you to a doctor. Just do as I say. I think you had better do as I say, friend. You are in no condition to fight. I can pull a trigger. I can pull... Come, Midnight. I think we had better take this stranger to Dr. Sixgun before he dies. Take it easy. Hand me those spirits, Pablo. Here. What? Who are you? This is my friend, Dr. Sixgar. And you are safe. Who beat you this way, stranger? Nobody. These marks on your back weren't self-inflicted. I fell. Mm -hmm. What's your name? Smith. Mm. Your rank? What do you mean, rank? You're a cavalry trooper. Says who? Says the callus on your saber hand. Also your boots. And the fact those clothes are obviously not yours. Well, I suppose it was crazy to think I'd get away. I suppose you tell me the truth. What happened? My name is Dale Franklin. Sergeant U.S. Cavalry. Where station? Fort Apache. 
Who beat you? Brock. Brock. Sergeant Hamilton Brock. Colonel Crown's private executioner. Sergeant of the disciplinary platoon. Disciplinary platoon? Yeah. You were in the guardhouse? They call it the slaughterhouse at Fort Apache these days. Are you trying to tell me that the commanding officer permits prisoners to be beaten like this? Not just beaten, Doctor. Staked in the sun for ten hours, kept in a hole like a dog made to eat out of a dish on the ground. Take it easy, soldier. You're all right now. Yeah. I've met Colonel Crown many times. He impressed me as a stern but fair commander. You haven't met him lately. Why didn't you see the military surgeon, Dr. McKenzie? Dr. McKenzie's been dead for over a month. I didn't know. How did he die? He was murdered. By whom? I don't know. They must suspect someone. They do. Who? Me. I see. Did you kill him? No. Then why did you escape? I told you Brock was beating me. Yeah. Well, I'll have to return you. I, I can't keep a deserter. No, I suppose not. Are you afraid of facing trial? No. Well, then... I'm afraid I won't live to face trial. I find it hard to believe that Colonel Crown would permit such treatment of prisoners. In case you don't know it, Doctor, Colonel Crown is a madman. Do you think you're qualified to judge? I think so. Well, we'll have to turn you in, Sergeant Franklin. You uh, don't seem frightened. I'm tired of running, Doctor. You know what they'll do to you for attempting to desert? Yes, sir. Well? Brock will kill me. Well, come in, Doctor. Come in. Hey, it's good to see you after all these months. Oh, looking well, Colonel Crown. Strange you should come to see me. I was going to send a messenger to you. Oh? Yes, I'm without a contract, surgeon. I, I thought you might help out until I got a replacement from Fort Dodge. Yes, I know. I, uh, I heard that Mackenzie was murdered. Yes, one of the stockade prisoners turned on him. Stabbed him with his own scalpel. The man escaped before we could try him. What was his name? The killer? Hmm. Franklin. Dale Franklin. I see. You interested in finding him? Well, that's a naive question, Doctor. He's outside my friend Pablo's wagon. Are you serious? Sergeant Brock. Yes, Colonel. Franklin is outside in the peddler's wagon. Bring him in. Yes, sir. Just a minute. Sir? Franklin was badly beaten. I know his condition. I think he deserves a fair trial. You don't think I beat him, do you? He says you did. Is that true, Sergeant Brock? Maybe the prisoner, no, sir. Very well. Bring him in here. Yes, sir. Oh, this Franklin is a bad fellow. Somebody beat him, Colonel. He needs hospital care. Well, naturally, he'll be treated humanely until his trial. If you accept the job as contract surgeon, you can check on him yourself. I think I can take it on for a few days at any rate. Yes, I'm conducting a raid on the Apaches tomorrow. We'll try him after that. Raid? Yes, my scouts tell me they're getting ready to make trouble again. I thought they were peaceful now. Oh, I know better, Doctor. Colonel, I visited the Mescalero village only a couple of days ago. There was no sign of war dancing. 
There are hundreds of them threatening this fort at this very moment. Easy, brother. Help him, man. Well, Franklin, I see you've decided to rejoin us. Yes, sir. Still no guilty conscience about Dr. McKenzie? I didn't kill Dr. McKenzie, and you know it. Don't address me in that tone, soldier. Brock, take him to sick bay. Yes, sir. Oh, and Brock. Sir? See that he's treated well. Yes, sir. Now, you'll find quarters for yourself and your companion in officer's row, Doctor. I have to supervise training on the parade ground, but I'll see you at dinner. They've been training six hours, sir, in this hot sun. Nonsense. Call them to attention. Yes, sir. You men, you call yourselves cavalry soldiers? Don't you know that your lives will depend on how smartly you execute these commands? Apaches are the best mounted soldiers in the world. You... Sir? Wipe that smirk off your face. I, I wasn't smirking, sir. Don't answer back. Sergeant, have this man's pack filled with stones. I want him to circle this parade ground until sunup. If he stops walking, send him to the hole. Sir, I, I, I didn't smirk with all respect. Maybe the taste of the whip will teach you to shut your mouth. I will not have this insubordination. I know what you think. I know what you whisper behind my back. Well, by Godfrey, I'm going to make soldiers of you all kill you. Sergeant, no water for these men until dawn. Not a drop. Sir, we're going on a raid tomorrow. Don't question my command. Dismiss. Yes, sir. Hey! Hey! Uh, what is it, Peddler? You've come out here to spy on me for your doctor friend. Oh, Colonel, I've not come to spy. Only to request permission to keep my wagon in your state. You're lying. Colonel, Very well, keep it where you please. And stay in your quarters. I won't have strangers skulking about my camp. How it happened. Just like I said. Well, that sure doesn't sound like the behavior of a rational man, Pablo. You are the physician, not Pablo. However, my opinion... Pablo, old friend, one thing a doctor learns is never to make a diagnosis on too little evidence. 
Sometimes you can put the patient in his grave long before he's dead. I suppose it is not easy to command a large group of men like this without strict discipline. But still, I... Pablo. Uh, Come in. Doctor? Yes? You're wanted over at the prison stockade, sir. Trouble? There's been an accident. Anyone hurt bad? Sergeant Franklin, sir. Franklin? What happened? He's dead. Doctor. How did this happen, Sergeant Brock? He tried to escape again. I was forced to shoot him. These bruises weren't there when I examined him this morning. No, sir. He must have fallen after I shot him. I see. Too bad. Yeah, too bad. I have to make a report on his death. You can use Dr. McKenzie's old office. Just down the corridor. Thanks, Rock. Not at all. Any time at all. Yes? Colonel Crown. Uh, what is it, Doctor? I've just prepared my report on the death of Sergeant Franklin. Well, I think Sergeant Brock should be placed under arrest for his murder. Now, just a moment. Franklin was shot trying to escape again. He was beaten first. Can you prove that? He has bruises on his body that were made after he returned here. Yes, but he fell when he was shot. Dead men don't bruise, Colonel. That's a medical fact. I see. May I have that report? You may. Thank you. Would you mind telling me why you're tearing that up? Not at all. You'll write a new one. Accidental death. Will I? Doctor, Sergeant Brock is the best man I have. I need him to discipline the men. If he gets overzealous, well... Are you insane, Colonel? He's murdered a man. A prisoner, a misfit who couldn't soldier. A man, sir. A man. Doctor, I have only soldiers in my command. I cannot permit any other sentiment. Listen to me, sir. This army post is surrounded by thousands of Apaches. Armed to the teeth. They're out there in the hills. Watching us. Their knives are sharp. We've got to train and be tough in order to defend ourselves. And that's what I'm doing, Doctor. I've made these men into machines. Machines that can stand up to those evil men. I'm going to destroy every Apache in the territory. Colonel, there are no unfriendly Indians within a thousand miles of this fort. Ah, uh, sir. That's where you're wrong. They're out there lurking, I know. I, I can feel their eyes on me when I ride past those gates. I, I can sense them all around me. I see, yes. That, that's why I need men like Brock, Doctor. I, I can't have weaklings around me. I've got to weed them out. You, you, you see what I'm driving at, don't you? Yes, I think I do. Good. Then you'll go to Dr. McKenzie's office and rewrite that report. Yes, Colonel. I'll rewrite the report.
this is she be friend? Yes, Pablo. Listen, you're leaving this afternoon? Yes, I go back to Frenchman's Fall. I want you to head north to Fort Dodge instead. Fort Dodge? With a message for the commanding officer. About Colonel Crowley? Yes. Here, I've written it out. I'll make it as fast as you can. Very well, I go now. Just a moment, peddler. Sergeant Brock, take that paper. There it is, Colonel. That paper is none of your business, Colonel. On the contrary, everything that happens at Fort Apache is uh, my business. Well, well, I see you have rewritten the report considerably. Hmm. Would you mind telling me what this medical mumbo-jumbo means? All right, sir. I'm writing to the commander at Fort Dodge to tell him that it is my considered medical opinion that you're a madman, Colonel Crown. You don't say. Furthermore, I've taken the liberty of examining Dr. McKenzie's records. There's a copy here of a half-written report. I found it stuffed behind the desk drawer. Give me that. Seems that Dr. Kenzie concurred. According to this report, he too believed you're insane. How very unfortunate that was. More unfortunate than he ever realized, Colonel. The stains on this unfinished report are blood. Evidently, someone surprised him at writing it and stabbed him with his own scalpel. Yes, an Apache named Blackhawk. Or a white man named Crown. I think you're the one who is insane, Doctor. That is for a medical board to decide after my report is filed. Unfortunately, your report will never reach Fort Dodge. You're both under arrest. Don't move. Sergeant Brock has you covered. I see. Just what do you intend to do? Place these two under arrest, Sergeant Brock. Yes, sir. Colonel, you can't hold on. I think I can. In a few minutes, I'm leading my troops into the hills to wipe out the Apaches. When I come back, I'll take care of you two gentlemen. All right, Brock. See that they're treated well. Yes, sir. All right, doctor, inside. What about my friend? Bedlam. He's coming with me. We're going to have a private entertainment. Inside. Brock, you'll have to account for this. Uh-huh. Come on, peddler. We'll have a talk. Hey. <laughs> Come on. All right. Here's your friend, Doc. Pablo. I think he needs a little medical attention. Are you all right? Yes. He hit me many times. That's rotten war. Pablo's is very wheezy. Just, just lie down. And, and Pablo, listen. Don't move, no matter what happens. Uh, it, it should not be hard, my friend. Sergeant! Sergeant! What? Pablo! He, he's dead! He's dead. Look for yourself. I'm coming in. Stay back or I'll shoot you. Adler. Adler, get up. Maybe, maybe I can bring him to. Try. All right, I, I'll need some water. Do without. All I can do without water, Sergeant, is... Drop that gunner up. 
break your back. Your knee. Pick it up, Pablo. Hey, heavy. Now, back against the wall. My back. It's broken. Not quite, though I was tempted. You're the lowest form of human scum, Brock. Pablo, lock him in. A pleasure. But first, what is it? A small debt. I come back later. Now what? We've got to work fast. You hitch up the best horses you can find to that wagon of yours. I'm going to the telegraph office to see if I can contact Fort Dodge. I'll meet you at the gate. Village, Colonel. There's double the flanks. Yes, sir. Right, Have the men dismount and leave their horses from here on. Yes, sir. Maintain silence. We have to take them by surprise. Yes, sir. You men. In a moment, we'll be within earshot of our objective. Our absolute silence will be maintained. According to my intelligence, there are some 800 Apache warriors down there, armed to the teeth and waiting to move on Fort Apache. Follow me and fight with armor. barely see the village from the top of the trail, Colonel. Hold them in. Oh. Let's have a look through these glasses. Hmm. See anything, Colonel? Hmm. <laughs> they're as thick as flies. Hundreds of them, all in war paints. What's the plan, sir? Mount the column. When I give the word, move the column down the trail toward the village. When we reach the bend in the trail, we'll sound the charge. Isn't that trail too steep for a gallop, Colonel? We will charge at the gallop with bare sabers. Those are my orders, and I'll shoot the first man who reins his mount. But, sir... Sergeant, mount the column. Very well, sir. Prepare the mount! Draw sabers. Draw! Now at the gallop. March. Sir, it's suicide. I will count to three, Sergeant. Either you give the commander, I'll run this saber through your chest. Very well, Colonel. At the gallop! Colonel! Colonel, look! There's a wagon rolling down the cliff top. It's headed right for the trail. You can't look out! What the... That looks like that peddler's wagon. Move it aside! Move it, I say! Hold it! Don't touch that wagon! Hold it! Nobody lay a hand on that wagon! It's the doc. I can get a clear shot from these rocks. Nobody touch that wagon! Doctor! 
I don't know how you got here, but I order you to put up that gun and step down here. As you say, Colonel. Sergeant, arrest this man. Just a moment, Sergeant. I have an order telegraphed from Fort Dodd. Relieving your command, Colonel. It's a fraud. Here it is, Sergeant. Sergeant, don't let this man trick you. He's a spy for the Apaches. He's trying to hold us up until they can attack. This order is countersigned and verified by Major Dodd, Colonel. He's our post adjutant. Give me that order. Here, sir. This is what I think of your order, Doc. Now, Sergeant, order the charge. I can't do that, sir. You idiot, there's an army of savages down there. A thousand evil-painted faces in the valley all around us. Sir, you've been relieved of command. Relieved, eh? Relieved? I'll show you how a soldier behaves. Bugle boy? Bugle boy? Sound the charge. That's the Lord dog! off that cliff. We'd better head back before the patch, Sergeant. Uh, what about that village full of Indians? If they've got war paint on, we'd better... Sergeant, take a look through these field glasses. Go ahead. Okay. Good Lord. The village is as peaceful as can be. Nothing but squaws washing blankets and a few braves sitting around. Well, the colonel must have been crazy, sir. He was a sick man, Sergeant. His sickness was fear. And there's nothing so dangerous or so contagious. You have been listening to Dr. Six-Gun... is played by Carl Weber and Pablo by William Griffith. Today's script was written by George Lester. Heard in the cast were Bill Gray as Dale Franklin, Arnold Robertson as Colonel Crown, Ralph Bell as Sergeant Brock, and William Keene as the sergeant.
Tonight, FEN Presents has brought you 55 Minutes of Western Adventure with Half General Travel and Dr. Sixpence. Join us again tomorrow night at the same time, 9.05, when FEN Presents Half Comedy and Half Detective Drama. Trevor McGee and Molly and Broadway is my beat. Tomorrow night, Trevor McGee and Molly are leaving for a vacation in Hollywood. On FEN Presents, this is Navy journalist Dan Jerkinson. We're back. You know, I, I have a number of ravens that we have been feeding suet, and I'm trying to teach them how to speak, because that is actually something that ravens can do. But what did you guys think of Dr. Sixgun? Oh, I loved it. I, I uh, absolutely loved it. I, I loved the character, and I, I, loved, um, how, I loved how smart he was. Like, like when he's, he's in it with the colonel, and he doesn't get into the uh, argument with him. He just says, yeah, okay, colonel. Uh, I'll I'll write another another report, and he just goes in and writes you know the same report. Um, <laughs> and, and so I liked the way that he didn't get into, um, uh, you know, one on one fight with the colonel that he wasn't going to be able to win. Um, and and I, I loved that uh, <clears throat> the character. Well, I didn't love the character Brock, but it reminded me of uh, one of my favorite films, which is Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh yeah, um, right. you know, in the in the part where where uh, Angel Eyes has the uh, the sergeant beating up the guys, and the you know the the Confederate soldiers are playing that dirge outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful uh, scene. So it was reminiscent of that for me. So I could really picture it, and uh, and I, I love the imagery, like you said, Lothar, in the beginning of the medical bag on one side and the the uh, the gun on the other. You know, I. I I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, he's a very powerful character, and we'll we'll get into some of his mythic resonance. But Jack, what did you think? I loved it too. But it's fascinating because he doesn't use his gun in this episode. So no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> it's no, more he doesn't. like Doctor Six Fists at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I loved it. No, I, I've I've listened to it before, and thank you again for suggesting because I totally forgot about this series, and it's a shame because it is one of my favorite Western series. And it was one of those that I listened to and I just forgot and didn't get back to it. The actor, is it Carl Weber or Weber? Car- Carl Weber, I believe, <laughs> but I'm not sure. It's written Weber, but it's, I think it's yeah, pronounced it's Weber. W-E-B-E-R, so yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. His voice reminds me of Raymond Burr. And the show yeah. reminds me of Fort Laramie. Uh, yes. So it was it was really interesting yes. to that. I don't know if you've listened to Fort Laramie before. I know you, I can, can tell I have. you have Lothar, but yeah, that's going to that's gonna be the next, uh, the next one when it comes back around to me again. It's going to be a Fort Laramie episode. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy he, Fort Laramie, and, and I, I love the idea of having a show in a fort because it's it's kind of like, um, so there's this this book called uh, uh, Save the Cat, 
and I don't know if I've ever mentioned before by by uh, Blake Snyder, who unfortunately passed away. And he, he he loved to reorganize all the shows into different categories. He would argue that there is no Western genre because in Western in the Western you can have all kinds of things. So you can have horror, you can have all these kind of things. So he had ten particular genres that he thought all stories would come in. And his first one was called Monster in the House. And Monster in the House is he he would he said Monster in the House is Jaws, it's Alien, it's mm. Cable Guy. It's the crazy it's it's being stuck in a small place where you can't get out and something is going to try to kill you. Yep. And I think like this reminded me of sort of Monster in the House of the Western like they're all put up against this madman and you're wondering how many of these these poor unfortunate uh soldiers are are sitting there, you know, just counting the days whether or not they're going to be the next ones that are going to die. Take away all their water for the rest of the day, you know. And right, yeah. Put, put, you know, put a ton of rocks in this guy's pack because I think he smirked at me. No, he did smirk at me. Don't tell me he didn't beat him. You know, like just those kinds of crazy people, uh, just the thought of, of having to, because you can't leave. Like the one guy who did, he almost died, you know, because he was beaten. But also you have to remember that there there are threats when you're yep. traveling alone out there. So yep. you are kind of stuck on an island when you're in that fort. So mm-hmm. it, you feel really, there, there's this sense of being caught. And I, I really love those kinds of stories. Well, and yeah. it's it's not exactly a Western, but, and I think we might've mentioned it on a previous episode briefly, but um, the movie, The Witch, that came out a num- about five or six years ago mm-hmm. is a really good one, it's a really good ghost horror story, but not too much so. But also, um, it's a really good of the isolation and oppressiveness of the homestead because it's a family that's a little bit too extreme for their Puritan community. And they go off and the family goes off on their own to rebuild just on their own and try and eke out a living from a very unforgiving landscape. And they have no walls holding them in. And oh, my gosh, is it claustrophobic? Wow. Yeah. That's great. So that that's and and as that's sort of like a predecessor because it's you know 1700s instead of you know 1800s but you can see how that sort of leads into and it has a similar sort of uh again the wilderness is dangerous and that's why we make settlements. Didn't they right. do a really good episode of that on weird studies? It it seems to that me they were talking about uh, the witch and the weird studies. They might have I think they yeah. were I think they were uh linking into it from one of their Arthur Mocken episodes yes. but yeah something like that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Hey, and before before I forget, because I want to mm-hmm. correct myself from the last show when we were talking about other westerns, and I had said uh, that Frontier Gentleman was about the guy who returns home. That's Frontier Town. Yes, um, yes. Frontier oh, Gentleman okay. is 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 about the Englishman. It's played by John Denner, the That's Englishman right. who comes uh, to town in that. And so I just I wanted to correct that because I misspoke and and. I was just, I've been listening to a bunch of Westerns to come up with uh, the next show that I want to bring. Um, cool. And, 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 and he's so. an excellent shot too, isn't he? In Frontier <laughs> Gentleman, isn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, very I much remember so. correctly. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one of the things I wanted to mention also about Carl Weber uh, before I forget is that here's a guy who was primarily in soap operas. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He was in Girl Alone, Lorenzo Jones, The Romance of Helen Trent, When a Girl Marries, and he was a longtime TV actor on Search for Tomorrow. Yes, right. I saw that. Yeah, and he, he also did some Broadway. He also did a lot of acting in Shakespeare. 
Oh, interesting. Right? Okay. Um, as well. But, you know, what happens with a lot of those people is that uh, they do TV and they do movies because it pays so much better. Yep. You know, and, and you get do- pigeonholed, right? Back in the day, if you were a television actor, they didn't like you going into movies and vice versa. You're afraid to go but- from being a movie actor to a TV actor. Nowadays, they go, they transverse everywhere. Kind of thing, yep. So. Yeah, and nowadays it's so different because you know of all the different you know Netflix and they're all doing their own content, right? Um, you know, so you do like a, a like a mini series, like the one I think we've mentioned it before, and it's it's a wonderful modern western, and it's it's godless. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, and Jeff Daniels was in that, and and you know, a great great cast, and uh, mm. you know, so I, I think that's all changed now as everything's become a little bit. Uh, muddier in terms of of content and and uh, that so, but it's a good point. You're you're exactly right. Yep, you got pigeonholed. Yeah, yeah, and gratefully so. I'm like, I'm. It's nice that for actors to have that kind of ability to be able to do different stuff. Um, oh yeah, and yeah, and I, I I like I said, I love he's he's got a great leading man voice for mm-hmm. this kind of character. I think he does really really well. He carries the show well, and yet um. It's interesting how they've counter uh pointed with his his sidekick uh Pablo who's played by uh William Griffiths. Yep. Um yep. Griff- yeah. and and I looked up William Griffiths' uh face and I was like I know him uh because he's been in stuff like Remington Steel. Yes. He's known oh, for yes. Okay. And, and that's that's what I first Hunter, saw him in. I'm like, well, how do I know this yeah. guy?" Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh so he did a lot of television himself throughout the years kind of thing. Um so, you know, again, he played a bit of a stereotypical character for the time. And it's very strange how that character, like, you can tell music is great key in old time radio. I, I'm getting more and more concerned that I, I can't do my own music because music is such a key for so many shows in, in setting oh, yeah. and resetting mood and tone. And so yep. you, you get this kind of... Um, very sort of offbeat, almost like lighter tone whenever we go to Pablo. And it, even the music sets you up by the way. And of course, his own little sidekick, which is is funny, like we talked about the framing, because at sometimes he's talking to the Raven, this is like it's his only companion, and sometimes he's talking straight to the audience, like a, a yep. straight narrator kind of thing. So it's 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 sort of a weird kind of dichotomy that they have for that. But it's I I wonder, and what do you guys think about this? How do you feel? I think it's a good idea. It kind of reminds me, I'm going to throw the Shakespeare in for you, uh, the knocking yeah. of the gates in Macbeth, like the mm-hmm. importance of cutting the tension with some elements of comedy before you ramp it up again. What do you think uh, about that? I think, I think it's a great technique because, you know, and, and Shakespeare does that, like we just talked about, you know, because you bring an audience to a point where the tension is so high you can't just leave them there. You have to let them, you have to let it come down a little bit and then you can bring them up a little higher and come down and you, you work like a, it's like a, you know, graph going up and down, um, mm-hmm. slowly building. So I think it's important to throw in, um, you know, those kinds of clown characters as, as Shakespeare would do. I mean, you get them in Hamlet, right? With the grave digger. Yes, of course. Right, right, right. When he finds Yurik's skull and, yep. uh, you know, and he's sitting there, and so so that you know, you, you get that laugh, and, and it breaks that tension, and then it allows you to build that tension back up. And I think it's a fun ride for an audience because an audience gets sort of exhausted 
of, yes. of being oh, yeah. <laughs> too tense, too long kind of thing. Right. And so, yeah, you have to do that. You'll see that too in a lot of like teenage gore flicks and stuff like that. They'll throw oh, in absolutely. some very, you know, jokey sort of out of the place just to sort of get you right back down so they can get you stressed later on. So, And there's actually a number of horror films to where when the audience needs that or your, let's say your average audience, because there's a lot of horror to where they're not going to want to let up. And right. they're going to go full on out. And that's the whole point is to be as uncomfortable and disturbing as possible. And that has a specific philosophical approach. Um, mm. And there's people that can do that well, but they have to go full bore on it. It's like they're 110% committed and it's a niche audience, but you're not going to get what I'm referencing here, which is the people that don't quite lean that far into it, but they don't re- provide the release also will sometimes mm-hmm. have... Uh, reviewers say, you know, it just got so much that people burst out laughing and um, I can't, you know, and then they criticize the show for some reason. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's a flaw on the art, on the uh, filmmaker. And maybe it's just the audience going, I can't take anymore. And I'm going to find something absurd because I have to. Right. And they're not going to give me it. I I have the choice as opposed to some of those more harder core ones to where it's like, they're not going to let you interpret it that way. And you're just going to either leave or, or stick it out. Um, And so, yeah, finding those releases are, is entirely appropriate. And one of the things I loved about it is as an oral storyteller, it made it feel not only as the beginning of your hearing a story that Pablo is telling you. And I love that, but it also to me, put it into the realm of an oral tale that was, I'm going to get away from our favorite word this season, mythic, and get onto maybe something legendary or magical and enchanted because we have a talking raven to where physically, yes, it is possible for ravens to be, you know, to mimic human speech. It's uncommon. And when you hear a, a, a male voice actor doing the raven, it feels unreal. It doesn't feel like a gritty Western. It feels like, what, what have we stepped into? What sort of strange fairy tale have we stepped into? And then it right. becomes very gritty and very, you know, temporally appropriate for political reasons and social reasons and other things, which merges into um, when we get more into the, into the depth of that sort of magical legendary thing. I see Dr. Sixgun as a shamanic character, and I'll get more into that when we're, yep. when we're ready for it. But cool. <clears throat> to that point, Lothar, when I was listening to the beginning narration, uh, when uh, Pablo is doing that narration, it almost felt like the beginning of a Disney film to me. Um, yes, it, you know, it had that kind of kind of jaunty thing, but it becomes very real when he gets beaten up, doesn't it? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think that's powerful. And just one quick point I wanted to make about the the release and the laughing is that it was. A couple of years ago, it was a big deal on Broadway the, of actors complaining that audiences were laughing during uh, really heavy, uh, you know, pieces uh. of drama on stage. And for those of us you know, like me who spent my most of my life on stage, you know, the audience you can you you can hear every little thing that comes out of the audience. And so right. when you're doing when you're doing a an intense scene and somebody laughs, it can be very disconcerting for an actor. Uh, and totally there were a couple of off, times, yeah, a couple of times on Broadway a few years back when actors actually stopped the show and asked the audience to stop laughing. Jeez, um, oh, yeah. Um, and and I read a I read a piece on. It. I think we talked about it in a show in an earlier season, but I read a piece on it from like a psychiatrist or psychologist who said that some people that's the way that they deal with that kind of anxiety is they laugh. Yep. Um, 
And so you, you can understand it. And so I think maybe if you don't have some kind of release that it's, it's going to auto release or something, right? Exactly. And, uh, maybe it's going to come out as a laugh at, yeah. a, at a really inopportune moment. Uh, and again, on stage, boy, that's a, that can be disconcerting for an actor. You know, I know actors who, if somebody opened a hard candy, you know, with the, with the, uh, you know, the paper wrapping, you uh-huh. know, they would, when you were saw them backstage, they were just going off, uh, you know, how dare they, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, so it doesn't take much, but I just wanted to throw that in there because I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting point as, uh, as far oh. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things which, you know, I, I find uh, it's probably really disconcerting for a traditional stage actor because as an oral storyteller, if you're watching your audience, you can go, okay, people need something. I can right. on the fly <laughs> mug up a funny face that still means that my character is scared, but I'm intending for you to laugh. We all know that I'm intending you for a laugh. Let it out. Now we can move on. And I can throw that in there where when you've got a script and a hard plot and you can't really have that freedom, can you? No. no, no, I saw not at all. Not at all. I saw at Stratford Festival. Uh, I took a whole bunch of students, and they had a matinee, and we watched Hamlet. And during, you know, um, uh, the "Is this a dagger I see before me?" Uh, yep. uh, s- a soliloquy monologue. Um, he had to stop because students in about the sixth row or whatever were talking, and he just stepped out to the very end of the stage, pointed his finger, and yelled, "Get out!" And just waited <laughs> until the entire class left, and then went back to doing it because he just this is before phone, cell phones. God, God help him for cell phones. Oh jeez. Um, yeah. Another yes. couple quick quick notes. Uh, I was I was thinking of while we were doing this. Um, as uh, Ravens, there's a show called uh, Literacy. What's it called? I I had it up here too. Um, Literacy, uh, Wonder and Adventure, and it's sort of pulp short stories and stuff like that. And the 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 main uh, host has a co-host uh, Raven by the name of Edgar. So I oh nice, <laughs> nice. It's, it's, it's it's a cute little uh, thing that he does. So I Never thought I'd throw that out there. Exactly yeah, really. kind of thing. There's, um, there's a, so yep, it's a lot ahead. of fun to be able to play off of uh, a you know uh, anthropomorphic character who's your co-host in one way or another. It does add that kind of sort of otherworldly and in some ways, like you say, Disney-esque kind of aspect to it, which again, lightens stuff up, but allows you to be able to throw something like a a left punch that you didn't see coming out of nowhere. Because uh, I'll tell you when, um, oh, now his name wasn't really John Smith. What was his name? Sir with an F. Franklin. When Franklin shows up dead. Oh, Dale Franklin. Franklin. Yeah, Yeah, Sergeant Dale Franklin. When Franklin (laughs) shows up dead, I, I, you know, I should have been waiting for that, but I wasn't expecting an adult Western that respect. You know what I mean? I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting it to go that dark because he knew it was going to happen. He said, what are you afraid yep. of? Going, going to trial? He says, no, I'm afraid of not being able to make it to trial. That's right. And, that's, and, and that was a lot of foreshadowing, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was, um, you know, because I, I thought all the characters, and we should talk about the, that, the, the characterization, which I thought was brilliant. Hamilton Brock, who is the bad sergeant who beats and kills everybody, um, has very few lines for the most part. But mm-hmm. I really, I got a sense of dread the first time I listened to it when Colonel Crown said, oh, and Brock, 
Yeah. Make sure he's treated well. And Brock yes. goes, yes, sir. And it's like, yeah. oh, he's way too, oh, no, that was code. Oh, he's, yeah. oh, that's bad. And I that thought, well you know, done. it was over the yeah. top a little bit, but it was just brilliant for this in that it was like, yeah, there's no mistaking what's going to happen. And there's no suggestion that Brock will ever, you know, come to, to charges for this. Maybe not, but we'll we'll see. I mean, I, the, uh, and this is where... Are we ready to get into some of the legendary stuff, or do you guys want to talk something else sure. before I no, fall down a rabbit hole? Okay, no, I, I see. Jump. I see Doctor Sixgun, uh, the character, you know himself, and I'm calling him that because it's almost like a, almost like a magical name or a superhero name, right? Doctor Sixgun, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm. He has a shamanic quality, and by that, to uh, clarify for the audience that uh, the term shamanic is used to basically mean anything anybody wants. In this case, I'm using it in a specific sense. The term shamanic was an academic construct created in the early uh, 20th century, maybe late 19th century, to basically be an umbrella term for Western academics to talk about things that they saw as being connected. And it goes back to a uh, the events-speaking people of the Tungus region were the Samans. It was the term for their magical spiritual specialist and so that term has been used and it can mean a lot of different things uh some people and i fall more into this don't like to use the term unless we're specifically talking about that group of people and we'll use specific terms for other groups but the reason why i'm using it here is that one of the common aspects that people uh will label under or throw under the label shamanic is that they are healers they are spiritual healers specifically and mm-hmm. that's not only on the spe- on the individual sense but on the body politic and that's where the role that i see him uh, having a shamanic role here is that he is thrust into a very sick dynamic of a group of people a, c- a community of people Colonel Crown is not really the bad guy. He is in some ways the the worst victim. He is terminally ill with this particular disease and he is infecting everybody else. We've got, you know, a uh, poor Dale Franklin who's dying. We've got Dr. McKenzie who, you know, he had to die um, because of Brock. And so Dr. Sixgun came in and he heals the body politic um, by, you know, it, it's like he, the enemies that he's fighting are just as much in need of a doctor as bacteria or viruses would be. It's just a, an illness of the soul, an illness of paranoia, an illness of um, fear getting the best of you and just not being able to handle it anymore and not being able to back down from that. And Six Gun says that too. Like he, he has sympathy for him. It's yes. not just like you're a bad person. He recognizes this guy's a sick person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I was I'm I've been deep in Challenge of the Yukon, which will be our next show, I think, um, because I I love the dichotomy, and it's a northern as opposed to a western, but it's still in the western kind of tradition. Um, but I love the dichotomy between how uh traditionally, and we can say mythic or legendary, but uh, America sees um its its uh its leaders and its its uh the people who run the place compared to the Canadians in that respect. So mm. you wouldn't see this kind of story in a story about the Mounties because the Mounties are incorruptible in mm. people's minds. It's not true, of course, but that's, that's uh, yeah. the what, image what, what, what that just, they what like just to happened, have. What just happened um, historically when we're recording this with that poor woman in the Stormtrooper uh, outfit that just got attacked? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're talking about Nova Scotia. That was, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, so that was terrible. And again, there's there, she's she's been lionized. But if you take a look at um, uh, also, there's been a lot of abuses. And now this is the modern Mounties. The the older Mounties certainly had very specific elements. We'll talk about that next time because I want to bring yep. up Sam Steele and everything. But in this case, I was fascinated by the name of the antagonist, Crown, because yep. traditionally in in American society. Um, getting away from royalty, getting away from those kinds of people who speak on high is is what they're trying to do. So this guy is, you know, he's operating like a monarch, like a cruel yep. monarch. Right? Exactly. So he's very, he's very you brutal. Pick that up too. So. Yeah. Colonel Crown was such a great name. I, I just love mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's like, I mean, at least they didn't go with Colonel King, but you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but choosing Crown was a perfect name for that particular reason. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's I, I thought there were some really good things. And it seems like the only really bad person um, that was truly bad without having a, a reason for it. And we don't really know is Brock. Uh, but, you know, at the right. end, when that other uh, was it a lieutenant or a sergeant that basically uh, great. Yeah. yeah, is saying like, hey, here's all the evidence. You know, you take over now. We're, we're taking, you know, you know, Colonel Crown is you know relieved of duty. Uh, there might be some justice for Brock, you know, because there's going to be a lot of right. evidence coming out um, and maybe, you know. Uh, again, that that part of the body politic will be healed one way or another, right? They 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 made no bones about the fact that Brock probably enjoyed the cruelty that they did, even though Absolutely. there was never there was no evidence that he did it, which is which is interesting. They didn't have a scene where he's beating him. Nope. This is all done off stage, but it's very his his like enthusiasm to jump yes. to uh, the colonel's orders are all you need to know about this person. Yep. Right. And poor Dr. McKenzie, I mean, wasn't he, didn't he have his throat slit from behind or something? Isn't that what Brock well, did to him? he's writing up his, his Yes, yeah, well, It's like, okay, that, that's, you know, that's, there's the, I'm just Jeez. taking pleasure in beating the crap out of someone, which is absolutely horrible. And then there's the, I'm going to sneak up and slit somebody's throat. They're an, another level of horrible. It's like, yeah, Brock, you're, you probably need to be put down like a mad dog. Right, right. <laughs> and I love the metaphor of, you know, Colonel, Colonel Crown is leading us off a cliff. Yes. No, he's literally leading, he's leading us off a cliff. cliff. Exactly. That's exactly where he went yes. himself, right? So yep. this, yeah, no, it's great. It was, it, again, really well thought out, all the elements of it. Now, you have to help me out with this. I was confused as to why they had the whole uh, Pablo's wagon rolling out in the middle of nowhere. Just to stop them, stop. to sort of distract them and stop them from, from continuing on so that he could actually get over there and have a talk with them. Yeah, I, I just, that's what, uh, the only thing I could come up with is like, this is kind of some kind of distraction method kind mm. of thing. Now, it'd be very, very cool. I, I was thinking in a story as if you could do something like that, but, you know, deep in, in the wagon itself, you like bury a charge of explosives or something. So people come <laughs> yeah. to explore it and then boom, it takes out the entire, uh, you know, the, 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 the bad guys or whatever. Not, not clearly with, you know, like the bomb and the hissing and everything like that, but just enough like in a crate somewhere. That uh, they would, you know, could go off and people wouldn't expect it. So that'd be interesting. But now, anyway. I was seeing it as sort of like the, uh, um, you know, the Western uh, audio drama version of the '70s cop show, where people are going through the alleyway, and right as they're about to enter the alley or exit the alleyway, the cop car comes and screeches to a halt, so they can't keep walking any further. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah. Perfect image that way for yeah. sure. Very yeah. cool. Just less of a funk soundtrack. Ah, the the 70s uh okay so speaking of stereotypes you want to talk about that 
<laughs> stereotypes of what? And and what what are you referencing there? Well, you, we're talking about characters like Pablo, for example. Oh, and, and, right. Yes. And, you know, yeah. the, the the ideas of of you know, ro- uh, uh, the Roman is the Roman people, or is like how? Uh, uh, ro- yeah, ro- the, they're either called ro- Romi, Romani, Roma, Romani. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of a variety, and, and again, everybody has a right to call themselves whatever they want. Um, so, but it's interesting how, like, why did they choose him to be the partner of Doctor Six Gun? I've never heard the origin story. Have you guys? Nope. No. It'd be interesting nope. to come up with that, right? Because he's almost, and again, going back to mythic elements, they utilize him as a trickster character a little bit, don't they? Yeah, and um, in the same, th- I found this very interesting because. In the same way that, um, you know, in, in the, in the new world, we have the minority other that is considered magical, right? There's the, the trope, and I'm putting this with an air quote so people, nobody get offended. This is an actual sort of trope, the magical Negro, um, you know, and then we've also got the, you know, the magical Native American or the magical Indian. And those right. are the uh-huh. sort of standard ones. But in Europe, the noble savage, idea the noble that you savage, see but in Mohicans and last yeah. and that, right. So, you know, even things like, you know, Tonto is the sidekick, you know, but usually, you know, any sort of like, oh, you've got that myth, mystical something about you that goes right. on. That's that that's there in Europe, um, especially continental Europe. Uh, Romani people used to have that same mystique even though they were hated and thought they were all you know everybody was a robber and you know you can't Mm -hmm. trust them but they also had magic they were the ones that were going to do divination they were the ones that are going to put a curse on you uh they're the ones you can get to put a curse on someone else look at um you know the wolf man right it's like you know all that sort of thing it's still in there but i thought it was very interesting for an american western to grab something that wasn't the the obvious choice. And, and I'd mm-hmm. love to know, uh, you know, why that decision was made. I think that'd be a fascinating conversation to listen in on, even if it's just a, Hey, we don't want to do something standard. Let's do something different. And Pablo has some grit to him. Like, doesn't he give the guy a kick too after yep. when Dr. Six yeah. gun, you know, yeah. he, like, he walks he's down kind of thing. He's like, yeah. 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 And, and good, good for him. <laughs> like he, yep. The guy was badly beaten about that kind of stuff. So it's not like he's just this happy go lucky person. I, you know, you don't want to cross them either. And I like that, yeah. you know, it, 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 it shows, uh, shows more depth and more dimensional use of the character. Yeah, no, I thought that was, you know, it, it was just a very fascinating show. I was not sure when I first read the description about Dr. Six gun and Pablo and his talking Raven and stuff. I'm like, this is either going to be really good or really, really bad. And, um, I was very pleasantly surprised and, and definitely want to listen to more. Me too. So it, it since we're talking about this too, we should talk about the use of the Apache. I know um, oh, yeah. I just finished reading the third, uh, been lucky enough to, to get a, a script sent from the amazing Jerry Robbins, who's got a couple of uh, movies in the works. And one of them is a Western based on his famous series, Powder River, which oh, very cool. like eight or nine series. Now y- you'll recognize the characters and you might recognize the plot, but everything else has been changed around because it's a standalone Western kind of. And Great. in this particular one, he has the Pawnee as the as sort of the 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 good natives that help out the guy, and the Sioux as the ones that are attacking, kind of thing. Mm. Which I thought was interesting because I think that's flipped from Dances with Wolves. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> do we actually utilize natives very definitively to wear like white hats and black hats based upon 
you know, geography, <laughs> like, which native tribes are around here? Okay, we'll have those guys as the bad guys, right? Or, you know, and, and a based, is it based on historical elements? What's it based upon? And, and is it fair to, to utilize those as, uh, in, in those cases nowadays? I think. For me, it's, um, I don't really want to use the term problematic because I just hate that modern term. I think that it is challenging because the history itself is very challenging in the sense that most of these tribes did. I mean, we now have this thing of like Native Americans and, and a lot of people see it as like one big thing. And a lot of these tribes were you know, historical enemies of each other for a long, long time. They considered themselves very different people, not like even uh, different, you know, subgroups within a larger group, but completely different groups. And some were more warlike than others. The Apache, the, um, what would, you know, they would call the Navajo, but the Navajo would call themselves the Dine. Um, you know, they were very warlike tribes. And then there were other tribes that weren't quite as warlike. So it's, it's all over the place. And then there's like the Shawnee that was a little more matriarchal. Um, and then it's like, okay, how, how much can I, even if I do accurate research, how much can we use this without it seeming like I am uh, appropriating something that I, that I shouldn't be appropriating? I'm, I'm not really sure. It's interesting to think of you. You mentioned uh, Dances with Wolves. It was right. lauded at the time. You know, how many Academy Awards did it win? And it's just, it's brilliant sure. and all these things. And now it's considered a very regressive uh, film that is about the white savior again. Right. Right. And, well, yeah, and even, does, and yeah. even when, uh, I think, a, a part of maybe a postmodern, um, deconstructionist approach that, that also pokes some holes in, in that metaphors when Avatar came out because Avatar is pretty right, exactly. much, uh, Same dances thing. with wolves in space, right? You know, it's right, sure. yeah. the last rainforest. There's a lot of those shows that are the same yeah. kind of structure for that reason and again and, and again, it's the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the white savior coming in and suddenly being the hero. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, interesting, uh, L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology fame and also a very famous pulp writer, he wrote the very first pulp Western story from the Native perspective. Interesting. It was called Buckskin Brigades. So, hmm. uh, you know, I don't know how, how well it would last today, but it's, I, I think what's fascinating is, is you could tell stories from all different sides. The trick is if, if those stories become stuck and unable to develop, right? So I, I've, I'm lucky to have so many cool uh, native uh, tribes in the various different areas that I, I uh, live all around Canada, of course. And um, one of the places that I live, there was a, a place called Red Bay. And I asked uh, one of the ladies who was actually uh, came from a native tribe. And I said, why is it called Red Bay? And she said, this tribe and this tribe had a battle and wiped each other out in it. And the rivers ran red. <laughs> it was like, and that was wow. way before white folk had come. So we, oh, yeah. we often have this idea that you know everything was peaceful and and, nope. and that nope, um, human beings are human beings. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the things that that works really well is that if you are respective of of the the culture that people have, because that's that's what they come in, that's the stories that they bring, but the behaviors of human beings don't really change, uh, you know, uh, based upon one particular nationality or, or another. There are, individuals will always be um, good individuals and bad. 
and and every every culture every you know whether we're thinking about something from the the clan the tribe the nation the ethnicity whatever it is everybody has had brutal aspects in their past and that's not to excuse it or to say see we're not so bad because of our things or whatever but um it's it's just the reality that human beings are aggressive human beings are a predatory species human beings when they are thrust too close to each other and don't have a way to resolve it will you know breakout in violence and we've seen that this whole season where you know we're still in a realm to where violence is a necessary resolution to these conflicts as they are building a new civilization and mm-hmm. what are they even building that civilization upon in this case you know we're seeing at fort apache uh you know the previous uh you know, migrants from Asia that had been there. Um, if we had a California one would get, you know, multiple levels of, you know, just cause I'm a Californian. So I know a little more about the history, but we've got, okay, you've got like the Olona people that were literally the, the one of the world's largest midden, midden sites, which is where they would, you know, basically a landfill of their empty shells and, and waste. Um, one of the oldest ones in the United States is within walking distance of my house from uh, the Miwok. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and then you've got, you know, the, Spanish conquerors. And then you've got the white people that, you know, came on, you know, the, the English speaking people that, you know, came on top of that. So it's, you know, the layers can go all the way down in oppression, especially if you go back to Europe and Asia and places oh, like that. So, yeah, I, oh. I love when we start talking about, you know, Anglo, the Anglos and the Saxons. And I'm like, and before them, there were the Celts. And before them, there were the laughing children. And, you know, you just get all these various different groups and they always surplant the groups that were there beforehand kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's we are we are a very strange species, human. Uh, uh, I, I don't, you know. Well, now there are certain other species that you know wipe each other out. Various different tribes. Uh, a lot of primitive uh, uh, apes have had incredible, vicious battles between tribes and stuff like that. But uh, so much for our reason. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, oh, exactly. And that's, yeah. you know, being married to a uh, anthropologist who uh, studied you know, and focused on primatology. Uh, yeah, I get a lot of, you know, that background <laughs> of just how we are still very much primates. Um, and, you know, you know and I live I live about a half an hour, 40 minutes from Plymouth, Massachusetts. You know, so so the whole pilgrim thing is huge. And, um, you know, I remember years ago teaching it teaching about uh, American literature and bringing in uh, Native American voices uh, and kind of dispelling all those myths about the first Thanksgiving. And, and you know, students were upset um, because, I you know, I told them, I said, all we have is two paragraphs, from one from a letter and one from a pamphlet about what happened that day, and the rest of it's all myth. Um, yeah. You yep. know, and so... So I don't know if people are aware of it, and I've gone on a couple of occasions, but on Thanksgiving Day morning in Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, there is a um, gathering of Native people and allies, and they call it the National Day of Mourning. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I've been to it, and it's quite powerful. And they read Wamsutta's speech that he made uh, at that time. And uh, it's, it's quite a thing, because I, I think that you know, one of the um, parts, and that's why when I, I listen to some of these audio audio shows from the 50s, and I get it, it's the time period, but when you have white guys playing Native people um, and doing these kind of stereotypical accents, it just, it, it makes me cringe. And, and 
I get it. I mean, I get it. I understand the time. I was a al- you know, I was alive in the fifties and sixties, and and uh, but still, it's you know, it's something that I just have to maybe just deal with on my own. But it makes me it it gets me upset, and um, mm-hmm. you know, the characters like Tonto and that kind of stuff. It, it's just, uh, uh, you know, and uh, so. Well, you anyway, think the that's... missed opportunities, like the actor who played Charlie Chan, and how. You know, uh, uh, in Kung Fu, you couldn't have actually had, you right. know, yeah, exactly. uh, Bruce Lee play Kung Fu. But you go back far enough, too. You can see, like, uh, the whole scandal of Grey Owl, which is fascinating. I don't know if you know about that. Do you know about Grey I Owl? I don't. I don't. Know. Are, are you familiar with Grey Owl, nope. Lothar? Not, so not, Owl- not, I don't believe so. Okay, so Grey Owl was a a really famous native person who spoke extremely well and philosophical and theoretical and 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 white folk loved him and it turned out that he was white that he was actually somebody pretending to be native who was actually from england um but he did he, we, he sort of you know went in as they used to say go go and went native he actually went to uh to north america and took on the trappings of that so i think he sort of honestly felt that he you know he was sort of in he wasn't trying to scam people to the same degree of just trying to put on a trapping. I think he believed in the stuff that he was doing, but it was obviously a huge scandal at the time, right? Um, mm. uh, yep. I- identifying in that way and speaking for an entire uh, group of people in that way. Uh, but yeah, you should check that out. Some interesting story. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I, uh, I I don't have a problem with historical stuff just because I, I you know, that's kind of where I... I live when I'm not doing audio dramas, that sort of thing. And we have to, there's always stages, right? And I Mm -hmm. think it's really unfair for, uh, not for an individual to be upset the way you are, Jeff, but for people to make it a cause. Like we have to wipe out this art because it wasn't, you know, evolved the way it is now. Well, yeah, that was 100, Mm, 200, 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so I I don't, I don't really have the problem. I I, I see it as more of a, how did that lead to the next stage that led to a better stage that then even led to a better stage? And where are we going to be seen a hundred years from now? We think we're very, you know, enlightened and are the people two or three generations down the road going to look at us and go, look at what they were stupidly doing. That was just horrible. Oh, yeah. 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 And 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 who knows? We may double back in various different ways. We as a yep. society, you know, things don't happen on on a constantly rising cliff. Nope. Human no, they don't. Beings constantly yes. come oh, back. God, yeah. And as they say, was it this phrase? You know, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it it rings the same tunes. Or it rhymes. Like that. It yeah. rhymes. Yeah, there rhymes. you go. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. yeah, that's a good. No, one. and there, are, you know, civilizations rise and fall, and enlightened civilized civilizations rise and fall. Looking at the history of Greece and at the various oh, time yeah. periods, and it's like, wow, you know, very enlightened to wow, very brutal to oh, wait, now we're in the Roman era. Oh, wait, now there's the Dark Ages. You know, it's like we we could have another Dark Ages. Maybe COVID For will sure. bring it. Yeah. Sure, and I and you talk about COVID, and I have a, a guy I know who's a doctor, and he said to me once, he goes, "Yeah, in a hundred years, they're going to look back at us, and they're going to say, you you uh, treated cancer with what, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. like with with radiation and all that, you know." Yep. And he says, "I, he, you know, so I, you know, and I totally understand, Lothar, I, you know, uh, the time period in history, and I'm a history guy too." You know, it's it's just, and I appreciated the fact. One of the things I love about this show is what you said at the beginning 
uh, about Dr. Sixgun being uh, the friends of white and native people alike. And, yep. and I, I, you know, to me, that shows that the writers, Ernest Canoy and, and uh, George Lefferts, um, were trying to get at something um, and maybe, you know, maybe go against some of those stereotypes uh, that had, that were, you know, so prevalent at that time because this is 1954 right yeah, yeah. So. and 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 you're, you're mentioning of them and we should probably explain uh who they are in just a moment but I, that yeah. sort of triggered something to where okay so we've got ernest canoy and uh was it george leffert george yeah. leffert yeah. yeah and one of the, the the things that they're most known for is uh dimension x and uh x minus yep. one which are mm-hmm. science fiction shows and, and ernest <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and Ernest Canoy, which uh, you know wrote the uh, show uh, Knock that we did a uh, recreation of a few years yeah. ago, and, um, and and they did a lot of adaptations. That they did a lot of adaptations. Yeah, yep. mostly and, their thing was adaptation. But the thing I'm wondering is like being okay, maybe being science fiction people, maybe not primarily, but at least having that in their wheelhouse. Maybe they are a little forward thinking of like, hey, what would be a better world? How could we get to a better world? I, this thing that's interesting. Point. Wow, that's a good point. It reminds me, you're talking about like what do we see in the future? I remember, uh, I, I love Bones from Star Trek, and uh, in the Voyage Home, Star Trek Four, he goes, "My God, man, drilling holes in his head's not the answer. The artery yeah, has yes, to be repaired. Yes, you yes, put yes, away yes, your yes, butcher yes. knives and let me that's save right. this patient yeah, before yeah, it's too yeah. late." I love that old lady hit, coming yeah. out, going, "The doctor said I grew a new kidney." You know, <laughs> <laughs> you never know what happens in yeah. the future, right? So you never yeah. know uh, what I, kind of weird. And, and and that that actually uh, brings up something I want to mention when you're uh, Jeff, when you were mentioning, you know, how we're treating cancer these days uh, and what we're going to see in the future. Well, do you guys know how they treated uh, syphilis in the past before they discovered penicillin? No, no. I'm afraid this to is know. absolutely horrifying. So you know, syphilis is you know a three stage disease. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right. And by the time it gets to the third stage, that's where you start getting like the people in the decadent period, you know, where they're going completely insane and their that's teeth right. are falling out. And at that point, you know, it's it's pretty much incurable. Well, it yep. and it, it always was until they found, um, you know, penicillin. But what they were hoping right. for in the second and third stages when it was getting to there is they would go, well, we know that it can't survive a truly, truly high fever. So let's infect the person with malaria. Oh no! We will we will hold on to them and hope that we can actually let it get to the point to where we can still treat the malaria oh, with this really horrible <laughs> fever that might have killed off the syphilis. Oh, geez. and maybe they'll be okay. But it was yeah. a similar sort of thing of let's let's uh, hope that let's hope that the cure kills the disease before the patient. Yeah, I remember oh, watching a show where they talk. Yeah. Talking to a guy who was talking about syphilis, he goes, yeah, I don't know, break a syphilis, but it went away. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, you're in trouble. Nope. No, it didn't. <laughs> no, no. That was stage but, one, my friend. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, oh, your point gee. about science fiction, I think, is so thought-provoking, uh, Lothar, because, mm-hmm. you know, the really great science fiction uh, is commenting on on society, right, but putting it so far into the future that you're you're getting some distance on it. Um, you know, and I remember reading, and I don't remember who wrote it, this wonderful story that was like only like a couple of pages long. And it was this, this person who was out in the, uh, standing guard by himself on some planet and he sees this alien. Um, and then when he describes the alien, what he's seeing is a human, but all the time, you know, you're thinking that this person's a human because, you know, that's. Right. 
kind of the logical step to take. And you find out that you're, you're, you're in the shoes of someone who is not human. And it's, yep. it's such a powerful, uh, story. Um, and, uh, and it makes you stop and think about differences and all of that. So when, when Kenoy and Lefferts take this and although, um, you know, and they tell us in the beginning that, you know, he's a friend of the native people. I, I think that's important. Uh, Absolutely. Sure. And there, there's a number of, uh, you know, different approaches to science fiction. But one of the very, very strong ones is that it's really not about science. It's not about speculating on the future. It's about mm -hmm. commentating on exactly what we're going through right now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This is where it's, I can put, put in a little uh, personal push for my, my old show, Alone in the Night, which both works really well as a quarantine show and also <laughs> nice. uh, asks the question about, you know, who, who is, what is an alien and, and who's, who's, mm. the, who's, an, who's the wrong person, who's an evil person here. So um, gotcha. yeah, that's, yep. a, that's at won an award that one. So got right me on. more oh, time. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm happy about that. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I didn't realize, and it was, those are the themes that I like to talk about in a lot of my science fiction as well, is, is, is com comment commenting on uh, what we think is, uh, is evil and not. And it's easy to do that, like, like Rod Serling would say, in sure. a fantastic or a scientific, uh, a science fiction venue. Yep. Right. It, and with, with the great literature that you want to comment on your time, uh, what do you do? You set it someplace else, either in the past or in the future. So, you know, Arthur Miller wants to comment on McCarthyism, right? But he mm -hmm. doesn't set it in 1950 because that's too close to where everybody is right now. What does he do? Right. He sets it in 1692. Um, and so we get a witch story. Same thing with, with MASH, the great right. movie and, and the mm -hmm. great television show. MASH yep. is about Vietnam. There, there's no question MASH is about Vietnam. But yep. it's set, what is it? It's set in Korea because that was 20 years in the past. And it's mm -hmm. easier for people to have some distance on that. And, and hopefully it, it gets into the consciousness that, yeah, this, this shows about Vietnam, friends. Or, right. Um, and, but it's set in Korea or this, this, this is not about Salem witch trials per se. This, this book, this play is about, um, McCarthyism and yeah. and all of that right. to which to which Arthur Miller was uh, you know brought up in front of the House on Un-American Activities and he basically yes. told him to, to uh, take a hike you know <laughs> and and, and, David Milch and, yeah David oh, Milch oh, did the so same many. thing with Deadwood he he was actually supposed to be doing he wanted to do it and set it in Rome and of course the Rome miniseries was going on at the time so he said well what, what else can I do because he wanted to tell very specific stories about people in a very specific situation. And he came up with Deadwood, which is outside of America. It's literally its own entity at this time. It's not part of the American United States. So um, he had this opportunity to tell stories about people who were creating their own kind of town. And what was that going to turn out to be like? Who are these people wow. that do it? That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it is interesting because I, I know that we have similar aesthetics amongst the, the three of us, and I'm completely right there with you. And, you know, one of the um, sort of counterpoints to that are like the authors, the very American authors like John Steinbeck, you know, mm -hmm. Hemingway, that was very temporal. It's about their time period, about their experience. Yep. And, and there's some people that love it. And there's other people to where it's like, this is 
boring or it's uh, it, it gets dated too quickly or whatever. Another approach, which I've always found fascinating, which is uh, different and comes more from South America, is magical realism of, you know, like the, the Marquez and, you know, oh, yeah, you know a more modern mm-hmm. one is Abel Allende and even, you know, Yorica could be considered that. Borges, maybe. Um you know, all that sort of stuff to where they talked about their time period, but they in, they inject, injected it with a sense of strange magic that was commonplace for the author, for the, for the characters. They weren't surprised by it, but it makes it, it rises it above the temporal and makes it something mythic that is happening in a temporal state that, that I think also works well towards what we were just talking about. But America doesn't do, uh, or at least, uh, you know, n- the United States, uh, and I'm not sure about Canada, right. doesn't yes. really do magical realism in the same way. The closest they get no, is I kind of it. weird West tales, right? Uh, and maybe, but be- even that's more that's more fantasy. Yeah. One of the things that defines magical realism is that no one is surprised by the weird supernatural stuff that goes on. They're going to be surprised by the political stuff. And magical oh. realism tends to be a little more contemporary, too. Yeah to, yeah, to the time period that it's being written, usually. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, Ursula Le Guin, of all people, actually mm-hmm. uh, described, and I would put her in this camp too, but she wasn't touting her own horn. She was actually saying that Philip K. Dick was the closest thing that the United States had to a magical realist author at the time period. And of course, really? he was being very science fiction-y with certain things, but also some of his stuff like Velas and uh, like that was taking place right now with just bizarre stuff going on that was based off of his own experiences. Right. But that's an interesting counterpoint of a we only allowed him to be a pulp science fiction writer yeah. and a similar aesthetic would have been you were high literary if you were maybe from chile yeah and and the 70s oh, science okay. fiction That's writers really had that kind of um they were really angry about the idea that they that they people didn't think fiction could be literary Right. Like, you know, uh, the people oh, before no them question. enjoyed the yeah. fact that they were writing pulp and didn't care about it. But by the time you get to 70s, you get to the Moorcocks and the Herberts and the Philip K. Dicks, and they're really frustrated that people aren't treating their stuff with respect. I still can't get over. I don't know. You probably heard the story about Philip K. Dick and his, and his son and like rushing him to the hospital in time. Oh, yeah. That just blows my mind every time I read about it. Have you ever read the exegesis of Philip K. Dick? No, 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 I have to. Okay, have there's to. a, um, yeah, I've got it right here. And this is expurgated. So this is edited and put together, and it is 942 pages. I think wow. it's something wow. like over 3,000 or something like that in its original sense. This right. is his writings about his, uh, the occurrence that he had on February 3rd of 1974, which is his big Gnostic experience that led to him saving his son's life, uh, all the different things that goes on. And he spends the rest of his life pretty much trying to do an exegesis about what was this. And it's yeah. oh. fascinating, maddening, psychotic, brilliant, uh, all sorts of bizarreness writing that goes into yeah. these personal notes. Can, can you tell, I don't know if, if Jeff's aware of it, and the audience certainly isn't, maybe you know the details specifically about s- saving his son's life that way. And, I and, and maybe you can comment specifically as to if there is a crossover between uh, modern Gnosticism and the idea and, and what we're talking about with magical realism. Ah, um, (laughs) well, his, uh, his experience, if I'm remembering right, and and there's so much that goes on, but I think he had a dream that his son had a herniated disc right? or or a hernia of some type. I think it had to do with his junk effect and his son was like an infant. 
right? Yes, an infant. And it was such a really, really, really rare thing, nobody would ever notice it. Yep. And it'd be really hard to diagnose if you weren't saying, please check this out. And Mm -hmm. he- And if he didn't diagnose it, sorry to interrupt, but if he did diagnose it within a certain time when it happened, you were dead within like 24 hours. Exactly. And he just knew he had to take his infant son in. His wife at the time was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're freaking out. He went in there and it turns out and he forced the doctors to do a test and to find out what was going on. And it turns out that's exactly what his son had. And he saved his life. Wow. And he believes that this, uh, and I can't remember all the details, but I think it was some dream with some sort of version of Jesus saying, I am not the God of your fathers, and this is what's going on. And so he had all these very visionary experiences. He also had temporal lobe epilepsy, um, Mm -hmm. which some people say, well, that's why he had them. And other people say, well, maybe that's just the vehicle that allowed him to have these visions because he did get a lot of stuff that was verifiable in very freaky ways. Um, Right. Gnosticism is a whole tricky category because again, Gnosticism is, it's not so, it's now an academic term, but originally it was a Christian Orthodox term to lump a bunch of different people that had different beliefs, but they all had the one thing in common of all being heretics from the point of view of Orthodoxy. And so Gnosticism was kind of like the term used for many, many centuries and same way that we would black magic or Satanist. It's like, you were just a bad person. You're a witch, um, you know, you're a Gnostic. Oh, that, those people were Gnostics. Oh, and there are certain things that are common, but it's a very, very, uh, in the original academic sense of the term problematic and that it really doesn't define what it means to define. So yes, I'm sure there are some sub sects that people would label as Gnostic that might tie into magical realism, but magical realism always felt at least the South American stuff is very Catholic to me. Um, because yeah, it always, oh, really? it was like, it wasn't about denying the world or finding the truth behind the illusion or who's the God behind God or any of that stuff. It was just, yeah. we've got saints, we've got spirits, um, we've got a bad politician or I'm, I'm in a weird relationship and I need to talk to my grandmother who's dead. Yeah. I was just wondering if there was tying levers between American ideals of, because it, like you said, it's more of a South American, um, uh, I, I, I don't want to say it's it's not there, but it's a, it's a South American uh, tone or feeling. Yeah. It comes from that kind of ethic or that kind of element. And and I'm wondering if, you know, the the more because American modern American science fiction writers and, and, and fantastic writers like Philip K. Dick. And I mean, fantastic and fantasy in that respect. It almost seems like there could be a line between those that 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 has to go over cultural differences. Yeah, I would, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that, uh, the Catholicism of the, um, of South and Central America allows for the supernatural to happen a lot more than Protestantism does. Sure. So yeah, Protestantism that- pretty much denies everything, right? It's like they won't even, uh, I mean, they were probably one of the first t- groups of sects to say, you know, maybe there's a devil. Um, maybe it's a metaphor for evil. You know, they would be the first person, even though there's ones that were far more hardcore and, and puritanical as, as well. But where you've got Catholicism, you've got saints, you've got angels, you've got demons, devils, you've got all sorts of stuff. Um, it's a far more polytheistic approach to uh, the Abrahamic religions than most um, Protestant sects would be, especially by the time that we get to the Old West and modern day, where maybe the only magic they're going to find is in the technology of the future. And there's a kind of version that's not like voodoo, but it's similar. I forget what it's called. Are you saying hoodoo? No, no, I, I mean voodoo. Um, Santeria? So, 
Yeah, Santeria is what I'm thinking okay. of. Yeah, Santeria yeah, that, has this mystical overturns uh, from Catholicism in that respect, taking uh, but, the saints yeah. and creating that aspect. Yeah, yeah. Both uh, uh, the uh, Santeria comes from the Yoruban people, and right. Voodoo comes from the Dahomeyan people, which are neighboring but not. Um, you know, they they interact, and then they've got the Congo yes. in between. Um, you know, sure. You know that, but yeah, all of those syncretized with Catholicism, and even this is an interesting thing: is that a lot of the um, uh, Northern European um, pre-Christian beliefs also syncretized with the saints before the Reformation. So we've got certain um, uh, Christian saints like Saint Oswald, who is pro- who in certain areas was probably a syncretization with Odin. Uh, we've mm-hmm. got uh, Santa Lucia, which in certain ca- in cases was uh, certain female goddesses, whether it be Freya in the northern realms or maybe more like a um, a Venus or a Diana in other ones. Right. So you've got you've, that synchronization just happens. It's part of what humans do. St. George mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, too, for example. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. We're going off track, I know. <laughs> yes, amount, we're tra- and, and we're we're reaching pretty much time. So, you know, is there <laughs> anything else we want to discuss with uh, Dr. Sixgun before we call it a night? Well, I, 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 anyone want to talk a little more about the writers? Because they're always uh, good to my heart. Kind of thing. We, can, we haven't talked about music, too. But um, I think we mentioned, we talked about Kanoi and we talked about Lefferts and, and what they do. It's nice that they worked together so well. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to have been in a writer's room with both of them. If they oh, had yeah. such a thing, that would be yeah. really cool. Yeah. Because they were very prolific and they knew how to really structure a good tale. You know, and some of the uh, texts that we were all exchanging yesterday in preparation, I thought it was uh, interesting that, you know, again, this one website, which might be wrong because there's a lot of conflicting yes. information about this show. So think about this more as a hypothetical than, than me saying this is what happened. But there was one part where it said that Lefferts wrote the story. And it was adapted by Kanoi. Mm-hmm. But they were both the writers that worked on this. And, and we were speculating, wouldn't it have been cool if like one comes up with a synopsis and, you know, sort of like, here's the, here's the general storyline and then hands it off and the other person scripts it and then they switch. I mean, I just think that would be a lot of fun. Whether they did yeah. that or not, I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, that would be a fantastic I, idea. That would, sure. yeah, that would be wonderful. You know, again, I wish uh, we had the ability to, there must be somebody out there who are listening who can point us to some of the old time radio uh, writers and just talk to us a bit about their process. Like did they giving outlines way ahead of the time? Were they just running by the seat of their pants? Were they given specific directions as to how they had to set each of these shows? Was it different every single time? How much did the network have involvement? Like all these kind of questions are just brimming in me and I wish we could find out. Yeah. And uh, my speculation. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, I, I was, go ahead, make your point, because I have something else I just want to add, not related. Oh, just, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the um, the early Marvel Comics way of doing comics, where Stan Lee would come up with the basic plot line, give it to Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, they would draw it out as if they were sort of scripting, and then it would go back to Stan Lee for the dialogue. You know, so it was like oh. this, here's a story, now you're making it something else, now I'm coming back, you know, and there's arguments as to how much that really happened or in what ways, but that used to be considered the Marvel style. And it, it just reminded yes. me, maybe that could have been a similar sort of thing of here's my story, make it something. And then we'll do the opposite. And it's, you know, a fun game as well as maybe an interesting way to work, especially when you've got a deadline. It's like, you know, one person gets to be creative and the other person is more of the workhorse and then they switch off. Right. And then you That's know, great. the serials, right? So I was just listening to Superman recently and they, they were known for having like six episodes in a row. And then they changed the entire format to like single episode shows. 
So like, again, who decides those and what makes sense for those kind of things? Were there two-parter Dr. Six guns? Did we see the same people ever show up again from a previous episode? These are all questions that I'm sure must have been hashed out in one way or another at the time. Yeah. Sure. So what were you going to say, John? Well, I just wanted to add before we go, and one thing I wrote down when I was listening um, was the whole idea about uh, um, Colonel Crown and and the whole dehumanization um, of of the people. So he's, I think at one point, um, after Franklin's killed, Matson says to him, uh, he's a man, sir, a man. And and the colonel says, no, he's a soldier. Um, yes. And and just kind of uh, taking away the humanity and, and the, you know, the, the note I made of, um, you know, men as machines. <clears throat> and and yep. this, this is just, everybody's expendable to the colonel's monomania. Um, and whether that's, you know, because of some, the mental problem or whatever it may be uh it's still there so i just wanted to throw that out mm-hmm. yeah it's absolutely like, it's like that, toy soldiers you know like yeah that yeah, same that, kind of thing yeah that really brutal scene with colonel crown where he's like you guys can't have any water and you can't do this right, and it's yeah. like wow right. okay yeah we you know i can have intellectual sympathy with you but emotionally no i don't like you at all man <laughs> right oh yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, no, that was and brilliant it, it point. reminds me of, when you say that, and this is this is a trivialized view of it, but I remember uh, playing football back in the early seventies. You know, before they knew about stretching and nutrition and all this stuff, and and how they wouldn't let us drink water. You know, <laughs> Jeez. And, 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 you know, and and just kind of the brutality of it. Um, yep. You know, and and. It just, I just, it's very trivialized compared to what we're talking about, but it just threw into my, my own experience of that kind of treatment and then yep. being in officer training with the army, you know, getting treated uh, as somebody who, you know, I knew that if I were to go into battle, if I were to become a second lieutenant and go into battle, I was probably going to last about three seconds, you know, <laughs> uh, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, you know, and luckily I never went in and I never had to, but. Um, you know, that, that whole kind of thing, but the whole thing about studying the battle techniques and all of that is, is, you know, you were going to sacrifice X amount of men to get whatever you had to do to get done. And you just had to, you know, somehow deal with that. Yep. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard stuff. And <clears throat> so I could, just like when, you know, when, when, uh, you know, we did knock and we talked, think, talking about the human condition. Uh, you know, I, I think this talks to the human condition about about racism and stereotypes and dehumanization. Um, so it's much more than just a, you know, a great show. And it is a great show. It's so yeah. it, it, it's got those layers and, and it's interesting to note and you call it an adult Western, which it is. And I think some of the stuff we've done, like Gunsmoke, I think is an adult Western, um, you know, like that. And, and I, I saw a note that this was on later in the evening mm-hmm. um, yes you right. know so yep. it this was not on at you know six o'clock or i don't know what time it was on but the idea you know is is after i think what would become known as the family hours or whatever that is you know so this would be something that that would be on later in the evening and something with some more a little bit more mature themes yeah right which i think is great 
like you were just saying, Jeff, and, and you know, getting back to, to my point of, you know, the, the shamanic quality again, it's like the we don't have a enemy like we did with Bo Helen or any of the ones where it's like there's an individual. The the enemy here is uh, depersonalized madness, dehumanizing madness, something like that, you know, and that's what has to be. That's the guy who has to be shot in the middle of the street by the six gun. And the six gun here is more of a a metaphoric one than than mm. a real one, obviously. So. Sure. Maybe that's a great place to end it. I think it is. Cool. So you said uh, next uh, next time we have a challenge of the Yukon. Is that right, Jack? I try to send you guys a whole bunch of them. And I, I gave yeah. you my suggestion for uh, one that we can look at. But it's always nice yep. to have because they're short. They're like, you know, like this one. It's about 23 minutes. So I wanted to give you okay. a more of a deeper uh, feel for it. But yes, challenge of the Yukon. Take a look at what it's more like uh, in a northern in that respect, in the time of the Western. <laughs> nice. That's great. I look forward to listening to those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we will, we will tie down a, an, an episode in the next few days so that we can get ready for our next episode. Very cool. Yes, sir. Right on. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us again for Sonic Echo. And thanks to my amigos, Jeff and Jack. Thanks, guys. Yes. Thank you uh, for thanks. bringing this to us. Yeah. Thanks for reminding Amazing. me about Dr. Six Gun. It was awesome. It was really fun. Glad you liked it, and I'm glad I, glad I liked it, too. I wasn't sure, and I'm, I'm, I love it now. So, <laughs> All right. All right. Adios, amigos. Adios, man. On the trail. <laughs> yes, sir. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. I dedicate this program to the fight against crime. Not merely crimes of violence and crimes of dishonesty, but crimes of intolerance, discrimination, and bad citizenship. Crimes against America.